0: Welcome to the LDS Divorce Coach Podcast. I take the sting out of divorce. This is your host, Emily Sanchez. Greetings, everybody. I am so happy to be with you today. We have a special, special guest on the podcast today. And I really feel like I found a gem. This woman is amazing and her whole concept and what she does and what she's about in divorce. It is so holistic. It is healing. It involves looking far into the future. And it's really just a whole life type of process. And her words are so invaluable. I truly feel like this is one of the best podcasts for those who need help in their divorce. In general, if you are at the beginning of a divorce, please listen in. We will be discussing her book, Dissolution to Evolution, Navigating Your Divorce Through the Concilium Process. So tune in. I wanted to tell you a little bit about her before we started, and I have like a super long bio, so let's see if I can... Um, condense it a little bit, but she has so many credentials and has done so many amazing things. It just says Heidi Webb has been licensed to practice law in Massachusetts and before the Federal District and Appeals Court since 1986. She actually joined her family's law firm, Webb, Webb & Martin, established by her grandfather in 1912, and then developed her practice primarily in the area of family law. Um, She's a trained mediator and a collaborative attorney. In 1998, pregnant with her third child, she decided to develop a solo practice so as to accommodate her lifestyle as both a mother and a lawyer. Prior to becoming a lawyer, Heidi received her master's degree in education from Harvard University, where she concentrated in counseling and consulting psychology. Soon after graduating, she was granted a fellowship with the Institute for Educational Leadership in Washington, D.C. Heidi has worked for the Department of Social Services, now it's called DCF, investigating cases of child abuse and neglect, the Mental Health Legal Advisors Committee advising psychiatric patients of their legal rights, and the Office of the Middlesex District Attorney both as a student prosecutor and as a researcher in the development of sentencing guidelines for perpetrators of child sexual abuse. And Heidi is a Family Law Section Council member of the Massachusetts Bar Association, chair of the Members Committee of the Massachusetts Collaborative Law Council, a member of the Social Law Library, and has served as an elected member of the Middlesex County Bar Association Association. And then the list goes on and on, what she is involved with, community service, pro bono work in the community, and civic activities. I mean so, so much. So there is a myriad of things she's involved with. She is a divorce consultant. If you want to know the right process, wow, she sure could guide you into that. You can always email at info at ConciliumDivorce.com. Check her out on TheConciliumPath.com. I will have all of these things in my description of this podcast. So enjoy, sit back, relax, take notes if necessary, as we dive into what the Concilium process is. Thanks. Well, today we have Attorney Heidi Webb on the podcast today joining us. Thank you, Heidi, for taking time out. Thank you for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Wonderful. We're going to be discussing your book, Dissolution to Evolution, Navigating Your Divorce Through the Concilium Process as well as asking you some other pertinent, wonderful, valuable questions that hopefully um, we'll have time to dive into too. So I know that my audience can really use the information in this book. I will include a link in the description to how to get the book. The book comes with a workbook as well. So, so I'm excited. I I just want to kind of dive in. And before we get to the book, I want to, I want to know the process prior to, so how did you get into law? Well, I guess
1: like everything, it's a long story. Um, I come from a family of lawyers. So there was that sort of in the background. Um, But I suppose that sort of led me initially to say, I, that's definitely something I don't want to do just because, yeah, I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to carve my own path. And, um, I, my mom also was involved in education and psychology. So I really had dual interests, but I also, um, you know, wanted to do things my own way. So immediately after college, I went to graduate school in education and psychology thinking oh. that I may become a psychologist, but you know, was toying in my mind, I think with the idea of law,
0: right. so I did my
1: master's degree with the option to sort of continue on for my doctorate. But I decided at that point that I would take a break and work for a while. and. In doing that, part of my journey involved my being in Washington and and working there and realizing that there were certain things that I wanted to do that would be much easier, if not only possible, if I had a law degree in terms of working on legislative agendas and other things that would require a law degree. So um, at that point, I had enough distance and perspective that I decided to apply to law school um, and did, and then sort of had this Background that ultimately led me to combine both of them. Right. So it was one of the circuitous journeys where I didn't really set out with an agenda to do what I do, but it it sort of came together in a way that it all just made sense for me.
0: Right now, when you started, you were were you starting right into family law as a litigator, or how? Yes,
1: yes pretty much so. Um, I I went into a firm actually that my grandfather had started, and I worked with my dad for ten years. And they did not have a family law practice at the firm. And what he said to me wisely was, you know, why don't you go through the paces at the firm and learn all these other aspects of law and do some real estate, do some probate work, you know, get a grounding sort of more generally. And then if you still want to do family law, we'll help you establish that practice, which is ultimately what happened. So then after a couple years of having sort of more broad exposure, um, I began to develop my own practice in family law.
0: Okay. And so being a litigator kind of at first, what did you feel like were the problems with that after a while? Well, it's
1: an interesting, um, you know, I I still believe strongly in the, you know, adversarial trial process and the courtroom has, uh, you know, is a great resource. Um, at times, but I think that, as, from a lawyer's perspective, you know, it's a process that is intellectually engaging. From a litigant's process perspective, it's that's not at all what it's about. It's an emotional yes. experience. Yes. And whether or not those two things align became really um, apparent to me in in my role and I ended up feeling a couple of things based on some of which I talk about in the book, but first, and and I'm happy to talk about now, but I think part of it was that it was, I enjoyed being a litigator. I enjoyed being in the courtroom. Um, Winning
0: and, you know.
1: It was just like taking away, you know, the operating room from a surgeon. It's like, that's where it happens, right? It's sort of exciting um, as a young lawyer to sort of like use all those tools. And that's why you went to law school and, you know, that's sort of like an exciting process. But as I matured and I felt like, you know, I go home at the end of the day to my family and everyone has a right to sort of have their family as intact as it can be or restructured in a way that works for them most effectively. But when the court system is, the family law system is really based on, you know, English feudal contract law. Um, okay and it doesn't consider all the psychological dynamics that come to play in everybody. And um, certainly it didn't consider that when it was establishing itself as a system.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, you know, we have so much research and so much um, information available to us now on sort of human development and brain neuroplasticity and all sorts of things that, you know, we can consider in a more holistic way if we approach this process of development differently but the courtroom isn't the place where that happens. Right. Add to that the fact that most cases, about 90% of cases, settle. Now, whether they settle within the court process or outside of the court process is, you know, is a question. But, if they're ultimately settling, the question is what happens between the time that they 're filed and the time that they settle or the time they begin uh, the time that that a couple decides they want to restructure and a time that a judge ultimately a judge must say that you are divorced, but what 's that intervening period like, and what does it predict about the future of that family once all is said and done
0: right, right, and so <clears throat> In the book, you describe taking some time away, you know, you had three children. And uh, what happened? You, you tell of an experience where you ran into, an, you know, a client, a former client. Sure. Can you tell us about that experience and how that kind of shifted your mind into what you do now?
1: Sure. Um, so as you said, I did stay home um, for, for a few years. I mean, after I had a couple of kids, um, my husband sort of felt like, you know, having a third child was pretty much impossible with our schedules. And if if we really, or I particularly, I really wanted to do that, um, then, um, you know, we needed to restructure our own sort of lives. somewhat. So what I decided to do was I would stay home for a year. I had never done that really with a baby. And I wanted to experience that. Right. And, um, you know, as time, you know, that sort of rolled into three, four five years,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, or about that. And as that was happening, there was a period in there where I turned the 11 o'clock news on one night, and I saw a young uh, soldier had been killed in Iraq, and I recognized him as having been the child of a former client.
0: Right, and
1: um, you know, it was devastated, and um, I called her and um, went to his funeral, and mm-hmm. uh, at the funeral, one of his high school teachers eulogized him, saying that the reason he joined the Marines was because he felt like he'd never had a family. Wow! And I just, in that moment, I just thought, you know, what role did I play in that? And um, it was a complicated contested custody case Mm -hmm. by all external parameters she had the outcome she had told me she wanted in terms of custody a lot of things had gone her way and yet you know I was standing in a situation where I had to question whether I'd contributed to a process that really didn't work for that child at least Um, and it caused me to really start rethinking what I was doing, and if I were going to go back to the practice, which I had already decided I was going to do in some capacity, um, what would it look like, and did I want to go back and be a litigator? I had been trained as a mediator during law school, and I'd done a fair amount of mediation along Mm -hmm. the way, so I had that tool as well. Um, But I started thinking that these uh, professional attempts to help families were really siloed in ways that didn't necessarily accomplish what they intended to do. So you had sort of, you know, two, it's sort of like two horses pulling a cart at different rates, the cart's gonna fall over. And, you know, you have lawyers saying when clients are troubled, well, why don't you talk to your therapist about that? And you have therapists saying, you know, well, I don't know what to do about that. Why don't you talk to your lawyer? And I'm not suggesting that I do therapy, but I help people right. look at things more holistically and put the right pieces into the right play so that we're not going to the wrong source for what we what we want to accomplish. And, you know, I often people will... You know, who are very emotionally distraught at the beginning of a divorce um, think that the court is going to solve a particular problem for them. Mm-hmm. And I often will say, you know, courts make legal judgments, they don't make moral judgments. Yeah. So you can't expect to have vindication or feel gratified at the end of a process when you go there looking for something that they just can't give. So, wh- where are you going to get that satisfaction? how is that going to be achieved
0: right so your intentions were somehow to have come up with a process of putting your background you know in the mental uh, field the psychology field and having them come out of it with a deeper I don't know uh, better mental feeling uh, uh, better (laughs) emotions better you know goal setting and that's what I love about in the book so let's let's jump into the book and your process that that you came up with now there's seven steps do you mind you know i want everyone to read the book but just quickly pinpointing those seven steps and kind of giving giving us you know i know there's the whole preparation of it into um choosing which method would be great for you things like that so she's She's going to go grab. <laughs> hold, hold on one second because I don't want to misspeak and I be, they've become Okay, so- you want to make sure
1: I, I you know, can I, list them off,
0: but just I on. actually have it right here.
1: Okay. If you want to go through them, I can talk to you about each of them, but yeah, I also- I'd love what to. What I also wanted to mention was that before we talk about the steps themselves, that huh. from my perspective, one of the I think most um I guess the way I deconstructed it I asked this very audacious question which was if I were to create a system of divorce what would it look like you know forgetting what exists so that seems like a crazy question right because we have a system and who am I to suggest that we should do something different but what if I just sort of have it as a thought experiment you know what would it yes. look like? and so one of the things that I initially thought was well why do we start at the beginning why don't we start at the end And that sort of may seem like a crazy thought, but lawyers start by filing a complaint, getting an answer, heading down the road of discovery, depositions, you know, all the things that are sort of leading somewhere, but has anyone really thought about where? Right. So what if instead, which what I really do is I start with clients saying, I understand that that you're headed toward divorce, and I certainly want to talk to you about that. But just tell me in your own words, what do you envision about your life 10 years from now? Yes. How about seven, three? We're going to pre fade backwards because when you have kids who are six and 10 years old, that's very different from kids who are 16 and 20 years old. Yes. And You know, if you really—not that you won't eventually get down to—we will drill down to the present moment, of course, because we have to attend to that. But we also have to envision the longer road and back into it in a way that so lots of legal decisions become different on account of that. Everything from real estate decisions to division of assets, because when we're really thinking something through in a longer-term way, and we're thinking. Okay, you're going to have child support but only for 12 and a half years. So, it's going to end. How's that going to impact your spending between now and the end of that? What are you going to have to save? What if we look at present value dollars and future interest? Like how are these things going to play out over time? So some of those decisions come into play as well.
0: Absolutely. It is really in line with what I do. I, you know, I'm more of on the emotional side yep. of things, but we have to envision, you know, those past the divorce, post the divorce, let's envision it, let's, you know, go there, so that you can make proper decisions when you're coming up with parenting plan or, or whatever. Of course, things are going to be missed, things are going to be left out. And that's another thing. We can't have the perfect divorce decree. It's yep. just not going to happen. And you know, like you said, the courts, there's just things that will not be rectified and things that they cannot give you. And so just to have those goals and to know and envision that is important. And what I really liked that you did and said and suggested in your book is when people come to you, you actually ask them, what is your ex-spouse's goal? Yeah. So you get them into the mind of, you know, who they're potentially divorcing and I think that that levels the playing field and gets them thinking about the other. I think it's a really good way. You know, how did you come up with that or? Yeah. I think it's part, it's just sort of part
1: of when I was restructuring how I wanted to think about it. I tried to think from many angles. And I think when I say, say that to people, what one of the questions I often ask is if your husband were here, what would he be telling me? And then what I will hear, it's a very different question from what does your husband think? Then I'll get it from yes. the wife's perspective. But oh, well, he'd say I'm really controlling. He'd say, you know, he'd say all these things that aren't, of course, true, but right. that's what he'd say. Okay, what, you know, truth is a very um, sort of ephemeral thing, right? So anyone's truth is their perspective. So he thinks you're controlling. Okay, when I'm trying, we will go through the steps that we do. But one of the things that I help people do is hire legal counsel, and I stay on as a consultant. And sometimes people imagine, and people often hire lawyers very much like themselves.
0: Um,
1: And one of the things that I try to help people understand sometimes is if the, the, the... Difficulties that you're having now have to do with your sort of your innate perspectives on things and your personality differences, and all these factors are coming in. And you know, if you've said that you know your husband thinks you're controlling, does it really make sense to hire to have two of you in the room? (laughs) You know, or do we really want to appeal to some other possibilities here? And what is it that sort of he most wants, and how do we achieve that? And just with that flip, people can often make sort of different decisions in terms of realizing that by appealing to a different aspect of what their spouse wants, they'll be able to get more of what they want as well.
0: Yes. Bargaining tool, actually. Sure. It just puts them into the mind. Um, yeah. Cause many, many, you know, women, and, and I mostly coach women, but I, there is a couple of men, but you know, just in that example, you'll, they'll think, well, you know, he can't handle an overnight or what does he want? What are his goals? Yes, he does. So I, I think that's really, really important.
1: Yeah, there are many tools. Of, well, we can, yeah, the book, but I was just going to say, you know, helping people sort of think in terms of um, a scale also in terms of like, you know, something that's a safety issue is very different from something that is like an irritation that you have with your spouse that right. you're never going to change. And also a court really isn't going to, A, care about or, B, perhaps even see the way you do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sort of understanding that there's a vast difference between, uh, between those things and what's that look like in terms of sort of a spectrum and where do we have interventions? And are those interventions um, things that are collaborative in nature or do they need to be something that, that comes down from um, mandated from a court?
0: Right. And I'm going to go a little bit off script here. <laughs> I, have a, I have a client who feels it is a safety issue, but cannot prove the courts don't care that mm-hmm. her husband is a porn addict and watched teenage porn while her two-year-old daughter was right on the couch. The courts do not, you know, her lawyer was saying the courts don't care about that. And so she wants to list all of these things in the parenting plan to try to control. What would your advice be to her? Well, I mean, I think that
1: when it, when something is um, detrimental to a child's development, and if yeah. she thinks that this is a behavior that, it, A, she's worried that he's going to uh, that he's a pedophile or that he's going right. to abuse their daughter. I mean, that's like a very different level. She doesn't want to wait till that happens if she sort of sees this right. as a behavior that's leading in that direction. On the other hand, um, it, you know, it, it may not be that behavior, but I think that the court sometimes will appoint a guardian ad litem um, or someone to intervene in a case to, to investigate and to find out what's really going on and to interview people. Mm-hmm. Um, and collaterals, and, you know, those cases are instances where court involvement may be absolutely the right thing to do. Right. Um, the question is, is it, um, does it rise to that level? Again, is it um, impacting his ability to parent, Right? or, um, you know, is she watching a cartoon, and he's watching porn, and I'm not saying, you know, there's, this is a good choice, but by the same token, you know, does he ha- compartmentalize these things in his own brain in mm-hmm. a way that, you know, it, it isn't impacting her at too? Uh, you know, does she run away from the screen and say, what are you watching daddy? And yeah, he, she really doesn't want her exposed to porn. Um, and those are images that a young child could get in her mind and, and could impact her in the long run. So mm-hmm maybe that's a very reasonable reason to be requiring or asking for someone to intervene. Um, I think that's, you really have to investigate as best you can. I mean, she, the other thing that's important to keep in mind is she lived with this guy, right? She lived with him. She was married to him. She had a child with him. Mm -hmm. She knows more than anybody what this behavior is like. She may not know everything, but she knows how it impacted her. And she knows if you sort of dig down into what this experience was like for her, her own background, her own trauma history, I mean, there are many reasons why this may be striking, you know, it may be everything from something she did accept to one at one point to something she doesn't accept at all now, or it may be something she only found out about over time and always was upset by. Right. Um, So there's a lot, a lot right. there to sort of.
0: You know, it, and it's one example of choosing the right counsel for you. That, you know, she just feels like the lawyer says, ah, oh, the court won't do anything about that. But uh, it sounds like that there are plenty of things that could be done. So, yeah, maybe it can go back to just choosing, you know, if you have that big concern. Right. And there
1: are many kinds of divorce lawyers and that's part, you know, there are lawyers who are great on business valuation and lawyers who are great on domestic violence or sexual abuse or, you know, there, there's like, I think it's like any profession, you know, not everyone is good at everything and you have to be really particular and careful and interview people. And that's part of also, you know, what we do is help people sort of distill these things and ask the right questions and, Right. you know high counsel who really is going to meet their needs
0: now on that same vein many of my listeners are i'm um, really young and they're just on the brink of divorce and they don't even know the options they don't even know that there's other options than litigating yeah. you know and I see it all the time in Arizona um yeah. So, if you wouldn't mind briefly explaining, you know, the differences between, um, you know, the sure. litigation, the arbitration, you know, you yep. mediation, collaborative law. Yeah.
1: So it's it's amazing to me, young, not young. You know, there are most lawyers. You know, part of I let me back up and see. You know, most professions of any sort, when you go in to meet with them, I mean, they're looking to be hired. So, you know, you walk into a store, they're looking to sell you what's on their shelves, right? Yes. Yes. So, um, you know, they're not really promoting what's in the store down the street. They're promoting what's in their store. So most lawyers who are trained traditionally, that's, you know, those are their wares and that's what they're looking to, um, to, to be hired for. Um, Mediation is an option, and it's you know it's very complicated because mediation isn't um, mediators aren't necessarily lawyers mm-hmm. uh, they're not necessarily psychologically attuned or trained mm-hmm. um, it's not a professional degree the way a lawyer is or a psychologist is or yeah. a doctorate or an doctor yeah. accountant is so when you hire a mediator, you have to be really careful about who you're hiring for instance a mediator who's not a lawyer cannot give legal advice Mm -hmm. they shouldn't probably be drafting agreements many do Mm -hmm. um and um that's sort of a, a whole conversation for another day but um You know, and there are lawyers who are great at the nuts and bolts of an agreement, but may not be sensitive to the issues involved in a particular case or the psychodynamics of somebody with a personality disorder. Or, you know, there are many things and reasons why um, maybe you would want to co mediate with a psychologist or work with someone who, um, you know, has both skill sets so that you can sort of understand these things together. Um, But in any event, the, and there are pieces, certainly pieces of uh, not, not, a divorce doesn't have to be entirely one way. So I might say to somebody, you know, I think that the custody piece of your case could be mediated and maybe even a psychologist would be the best person to mediate that and develop the parenting plan. But there are other aspects of this having to do with property or having to do with a future inheritance or yes. you know, other issues that are strictly legal issues and I really don't want a psychologist trying to muck around in that. Um, yes. So it, looking at it sort of more holistically allows you to have latitude within that. That being said, mediation is a voluntary process. It is something that you can enter and leave, you know, of your own volition, both parties. It's neutral. The mediator is a neutral person. So they're not giving advice. When I mediate, for instance, and I do mediate, I, I, will say to people, I will pretty much, without exception, require um, that they have lawyers of their own outside mediation. And sometimes I'll, lawyer, I'll mediate with the lawyers present and sometimes not. But um, I am not giving legal advice during it, which doesn't mean I can't tell them broadly about the, the, the contours of the law or the landscape of what a judge is likely to consider. But as far as the particulars relative to their situation, they should be consulting with their own lawyer about that. Mm -hmm. So I want, and sometimes I'm outside counsel on a mediation. So someone has hired another mediator, and um, I will advise people in that capacity as their lawyer. Um, so, uh, So let's sort of go through the paces, and then we can talk about the concilium process itself if you want and how that sort of works. So um, conciliation, um, conciliators are people who have a a broad depth of, broad and deep experience in the family law practice. Some conciliators are retired judges, some are very experienced practitioners, Mm -hmm. um, but they're people who can weigh in on a case. So there are times when, say, other lawyers might call me and say, you know, we have this case, the the parties are like, certain distance apart. We think they could sell, but they don't really understand if it goes to court what it's likely to look like. So before we sort of like go down that road, we were wondering if you'd weigh in on a conciliation. So I'll hear what both parties have to say. I'll hear what the lawyers have to say. And then I will tell the parties what I think a court is likely to do as a con- in a role as a conciliator. Okay. And so Or somebody else could do that. But that's, you know, what the role of a conciliation is. Mm-hmm. Arbitration, we're sort of going up a staircase here. So okay. mediation sort of like the furthest away from a courtroom okay. and litigation is you're in court. So conciliation, you know, you're sort of seeking the advice of someone who has experience in the courtroom and can give you that perspective, but it's a non-adversarial process. Mm-hmm. Arbitration is like a private courtroom. So you're basically saying, we think we have particular issues that are, um, we want to basically be able, one is that you can, I don't want to say handpick a judge, but sort of, I mean, you can interview multiple people and say, you know, these are the issues involved. What's your level of experience with them? We want to make sure that the judge that we're hiring on this case, you know, really understands that this is a, you know. Uh, closely held business in the manufacturing industry, and we want to make sure that you really understand the dynamics of, you know, money coming in, money going out, whatever, how it impacts future um, cash flow for this family versus, you know, current assets available and and things like that. So, if you have a case that's either a high profile case, we sometimes will send to arbitration so it's not public, okay, um, or there are some unique complexities in a case that. Um, you just think that you might be better off um, interviewing and hiring somebody who really understands the complexity of those issues. Arbitration would be a good choice in those instances, but they will come down with a decision and it can be binding. So the parties agree up front that whatever decision this person makes, we're going to, we're going to abide by it and we're going to send it to the court and have it become an order of the court.
0: So it will be as
1: valid as a court order. Okay. litigation is the typical process that we're talking about. It's public forum. It, um, you know, you uh, have all the advantages and disadvantages of that. You go in an open courtroom. Mm -hmm. Anyone can walk into that courtroom. Um, There are multiple judges who may uh, hear your case. It's sort of, I don't want to say luck of the draw, but sort of that. I mean, you may get a judge who's you know, very sensitive to the issues in your case, you may get a judge who just went on the bench, you know, last month. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, you just, you're not as sure. Um, There's a very particular process. And, you know, there's trial level, there's appellate level, if you want to appeal something you think a lower court judge didn't do, I mean, you, there's, there are protections in that process, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of discovery, in terms of, the judge on a case being able to order that certain things happen. So if someone's reluctant to um, give over their tax returns or um, yeah. other parts of a case, a judge can make an order and they can penalize somebody uh, monetarily or even um, sanction them with, uh, they, they could theoretically give somebody time um, in jail if they didn't comply with the, the um, order of the court, if it was a violation in that respect um also if there's restraining orders involved or criminal issues of abuse um there's certainly reasons why you want to be in a courtroom and have protections and you may from the very beginning of a case i should have said that perhaps at the outset but if there's domestic violence involved and you're talking about a restraining order at the very beginning of a case you certainly don't want to uh be negotiating on those issues um and if drugs and alcohol or mental health are issues, you know, the landscape changes dramatically and quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, let's let's go over to your concilium process that you do with your <laughs> firm. And, you know, you have step seven steps here. The first is, of course, you're going to interview an intake, you know, what to expect. You talked a little bit about that, getting a vision for the future, your goals, you know, kind of taking it back a step. Is there anything else in that that you want to expound on?
1: That is sort of a, you know, that process um, is also broader than a typical legal intake in that it accounts for family history and it accounts for, um, you know, people often think there are only two people in a marriage. Mm -hmm. And um, often that's not, True especially if someone's involved in a family business or they have sort of intermeddling family members or there's an affair, um, you know there are many times there's there are more than two people in a marriage, and really understanding the dynamics of what's going on is important in my work to help people really structure things moving forward, whereas oftentimes in a more traditional uh, legal interview, although they're not um, blind to these issues. They don't see them as relevant when they're just looking for facts that will mandate the division of property. And children, sadly, are often, I don't want to say an afterthought, but I think people are very typically at the beginning of a divorce, of course, you know, really concerned with their own welfare. And it's almost like the instinct when you're, you know, in a car accident, you know, you're, protective of yourself when you see a car coming much as you want to be you know Mm -hmm. protective of the passenger or even your children in the car your instinct is to protect your body and um you know when anyone is thinking emotion is not thinking but is is feeling emotionally Mm -hmm. they're not logically sort of having all the pieces line up and we also we almost at that point are standing in for your logical brain and yeah. being able to say yeah. but what about what what's going on with your kids let's talk about them a bit and definitely what are the relationships with with the in-laws and what's this going to look like afterwards and trying to get a more holistic understanding oftentimes people have had very good relationships with soon to be former in-laws and yeah. that's the sadness too losing those relationships. Um, and for kids, you know, they're all grandparents. Yeah. So, you know, what's your role with that? You know, I, the other day I had somebody say that um, someone's mother, he had had a, this woman had called and her husband had had a falling out with his own parents. And the parents had reached out to the, Daughter in law, former daughter in law, because they wanted to see the grandchildren. And the husband forbade her from allowing her to let the grandparents see the kids. Now, I mean, that's a really unfortunate circumstance for the children, but had they been able to think at the beginning, even as part of this process, you know, we value those relationships. Not saying that you could totally avoid the breakdown between the husband and his parents in terms of what happened afterwards. But if there was agreement up front, at least that we we agree that we want our children to have relationships with all their grandparents. Yeah. That could sort of like pre-think some of these things and say, no matter what happens between me and them or disagreements or
0: yes yes we see it so so often and just hurrying you along a little bit i mean i could i could talk for hours but then you do the assessment and envisioning a future that's number two then creating a parallel path yeah what do you mean by parallel exactly
1: so we have the legal path of divorce but there's also your own parallel path of growth Okay. So if people sort of become consumed with, like, they become their divorce, mm. then that's a pretty damning outcome, really. Because, first of all, that's what they're absorbed in, and that's not probably the healthiest only thing to be thinking about. And also, at the end, when they when it ends, and it will end, then you're left saying, now what do I do? So if instead you start at the beginning saying, you know, that's one thing that's happening in my life. But I also always wanted to go to graduate school or want to volunteer at my kids' school or wanted to start a business or whatever these other goals are that you might have for yourself and you're building something positive simultaneously with this other part of your life that's changing, yeah. you're gonna have you're gonna reach a very different outcome. And when you end one piece, you'll still be growing in another way, which I seems to me to be a much more positive way to s- experience
0: this absolutely okay so number four is choosing the right divorce process you know you hit on the different ways the processes. so explain a little bit about what you do there yep so a lot of
1: that has to do with really understanding what the dynamics are and what the personality plays are of the people involved so for instance, if somebody, if the, if it's not a level playing field in terms of knowledge, in terms of finance, in terms of uh, personality, um, if somebody feels bullied by somebody, if somebody feels like uh, somebody may be um, a functional alcoholic, um, mm-hmm. there are lots of reasons that I may say out of the gate, yeah, I don't think mediation is probably going to work. One, you know, sometimes people will come in to me and say. Um, My husband says we have to mediate, (laughs) which is sort of like a big red flag. Um, So, you know, this is a process that I want to help people become an agent of for themselves. Mm -hmm. So that means being able to be engaged in it. If someone feels bullied into a process from the very beginning, that doesn't really predict a good process. Um. Some of the things we talked about in terms of safety, in terms of domestic violence, um, you know, there are reasons that a restraining order needs to be obtained, um, that a court process may be, you know, um, necessary. But there's also a lot more of the in-between, whereas relationships, you know, it's not working people are still reasonably amicable. They don't have vast sums of hidden money. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody's a W-2 employee. They understand what um, the finances are. They know it's going to be harder after they divorce than, you know, financially than it is as one family. You know, there are certain uh, things that people sort of know and are willing to accept and have to make concessions and understand that they're going to work within those guidelines. So the other um, path that we didn't talk about was collaborative law. Yeah. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that too. But in any event, the my that's sort of my part of the process and choosing the process is we'll discuss them all. Ultimately I'll make recommendations. Mm-hmm. And the counsel and the interview process that we determine from that will be based on that decision and sometimes we'll have people interview collaborative lawyers and litigators you know there'll be a reason to to sort of cross over and and get a sense of um what the issues are so collaborative law is a process that was developed maybe 30 years ago or so um in um i want to say i want to say montana but i'm not 100 Mm percent sure um but it was um I'm just looking. I spoke at the conference, and it was 25. It was probably 28 years ago. <laughs> in any event, um, so it was a. Cl- it was sort of a hybrid between litigation and mediation. In other words, people who are involved in the collaborative process always have a lawyer with them, unlike the mediation process, which that's that's not necessarily true and there's a fifth person in the room so there are the parties the lawyers and a coach and that coach is somebody who's sort of a mental health professional Mm -hmm. and their role is to act as a process facilitator Mm -hmm. so they're struggling through this process together with the advice of counsel in the moment right so it's entirely transparent you never will have you know one client saying to you that well my lawyer said and the other person saying well my lawyer said because both lawyers are there <laughs> and the, you know everything's happening sort of real time so people have to be able to sort of withstand sort of the struggle of
0: mm-hmm.
1: of some of those dynamics um, the lawyers agree up front that they won't go to court if there's a contested matter, which means that if it becomes contested, the the parties or the clients have to hire other legal counsel. So that's, I'm I putting in quotes, a risk sort of going into it. Um, I certainly, if I think that that's likely, I'm not going to recommend it. Um, but if I think people are going to have the fortitude to work through those struggles in that, um, dynamic, I think it can be a fantastic process. Right. Um, so it's not legal in every state, right. Um, but, um,
0: it is in many. Right. So, um, that's, yeah, do your homework and check around if you think that that's the right fit for you because exactly. yeah, I, I love that as I was studying more about that. Um, But I just wish more people would look into those type of options, even.
1: It's it's always interesting to me how few people, you know, know about it when I first meet with them. I mean, it's just not something that's commonly known to people outside of the practice. And yet it is like certainly in Massachusetts, we have many excellent collaborative practitioners. Um, And I've worked on many very complicated and not complicated cases through the collaborative process very, very
0: effectively. Now, Heidi, would you consult people from other states or how does that work? Yeah, so I'm only licensed in Massachusetts
1: and okay. I only practice law in Massachusetts. The concilium process obviously is a hybrid process. Right. I've worked with many lawyers in other states and actually in other countries. Um, so when clients want to engage in this process, I can do it. Um, so long as I'm working with someone who's licensed in another state, and they're advising on the particulars of the law in that state. Okay. Um, and there are times that people consult sort of more on the process itself and not on the law, and that you know we can certainly help people through. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, recently had a case in Qatar, in China, in England, mm-hmm. um, you know, many different states in the United States, but. With the advice of other counsel, working
0: in, in concert with the advice of other counsel. Yeah, just uh, I think your breadth of knowledge would just be so invaluable to to so so many people. Um, Seguing back <laughs> to the step, yeah. yeah. Is, uh, so finding the appropriate counsel, you know, and professional supports. Um, what do you find, you know, is kind of your recurring advice? Yeah. When they're looking for lawyers and they're.
1: Yep. So, you know, I probably work with close to 100 lawyers in Massachusetts. So I've, you know, have siloed sort of how I work with various people um, based on cases and experience and expertise of, of um, the people that I work with. But when people are working, you know, outside sort of my knowledge base, I think it's important to construct questions that really address the particulars of their concerns, and not assume that one size fits all. You know yeah. that they have the right, and they they're the consumer, and that they should go into an interview asking substantive questions and expect answers. And if they're talking to people who can't give them those answers, um you know, it's, it's much more worthwhile for people to pay for the hour of a lawyer's time, if that's what it is, and have a substantive conversation, than have a free sort of meet and greet. And well, we can talk about that once you hire me, right, you know, you're sort of down this path, and you don't really know quite where you're headed.
0: Absolutely. And, and I, you know, instruct people all the time. Well, I don't have money. I just don't have money. And I said, this will be worth so much more to you if you invest in this now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and do everything you can now because the future is just yeah, it could be completely disarrayed if you get with the wrong right. the wrong people. I mean but, it's
1: really for most people it's the most important financial
0: decision they'll oh, make. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely concur. Now, number six is staying on track. So yeah. just through that divorce process. What's yeah, this? and I think that, you know,
1: when you are part of a process, it's very difficult to um, sort of keep track of where you are. It's sort of like, um, what's a good example? Um, you know, if you're swimming in water, you're sort of not aware of the air. I don't know. And, um because I sort of stand 10,000 feet above the process, I'm able to give a little bit more perspective to the lawyers and the clients sometimes when they're entrenched in a position or sometimes lawyers will call and say, you know, I've been really been trying to uh, help this client understand X, Y, Z, and I don't really feel like they're hearing me on it. Can you talk to them? Or I'll have clients say, I've been trying to reach my lawyer for a week and I haven't gotten a return call. I don't know why I'm not. Uh, Can you reach out? And, you know, being that the fulcrum in that process, I can. Tra- you, there's usually a reason from one person's perspective or another as to what's going on, and so trying to help people understand that so they don't derail the process inadvertently, not out of any malice, but just because things happen along the way. And there are other times that sometimes people will get hyper focused on an issue they think is the end all and be all to their case and lose sort of more perspective on the overall one sec. Let's go back to what we said about where you wanted to be seven years from now. How is this one piece going to play out? And what's the, you know, what are you giving up by focusing on this so intently now? What are you giving up of what you thought you wanted in the future? Is this helping you ultimately or not? Um, There's a theory of something called radical acceptance. I don't know if you've thought heard of it at all. But, you know, there are there are times that people um are best off, and I'm not saying to give up on something that where there's hope of change or where you is safety's involved or there's an issue that um is pertinent to the process, but there are times that it's almost like you're banging your head against the wall and you just have to say, you know, is this worth it? Or is this just something I have to accept? Is the way it's going to be? Right. it's a personality trait I'm not going to change.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a book called Loving What Is by Byron Katie. It's just completely all about accepting and loving it. And that is definitely hard to do through the divorce process, okay. but totally. Now, the 7, the 7th step outcomes. So outcomes,
1: you get to the end and um then it's time to reevaluate really. And it's partly it's, you know, have certain things been done. If there are qualified domestic relation orders that you know have been allowed have they been brought to the you know companies and made sure that the people who are actually going to act on these things have them in place you know sometimes 80% of something happens but the last 20% that needs to happen doesn't happen or someone says that they'll sign a deed in the agreement but the deed actually isn't signed you I know mean, all those details at the end that you know, need to happen, bank accounts divided, credit cards stopped, like all the sort of logistical things that maybe happened during the course of the divorce, maybe didn't, um, estate plans, you know, they're not going to be valid anymore. Guardians have that, that some of that should have been addressed during the divorce isn't always. Um, but you, do you need to have a new will have healthcare proxies, powers of attorney, a lot of sort of issues that during the process, may or may not have been addressed, you certainly want to circle back and make sure that they're you know, buttoned up now.
0: Right. I know that's the fear of many of my clients. They'll say, well, it's, it's in the papers, but that doesn't mean that he or she will actually do it. And yeah. what then? What then? What can I do if they don't abide by this plan? If they don't abide by those things, what can be done? How, how do you address that?
1: Well, I mean, if somebody's really not abiding by a court order, it's a contempt. Yeah, you go back um, so, so there's that. The question is, you know, what are the things that they're worried about? Are they things that they can do something about? Um,
0: mostly, you, know, you know, mostly it's the, the parenting plan. It's the custody. It's the time that you're supposed to be here. They're never there on time. Or, you know, they took her for too long. Or they you know, have babysitters while you know, while they're supposed to be watching their child. I mean, right. I, could right. and on and well, on. I think it
1: has to do with like frequency and intensity is sort of how I think of it. Um, you know, is this sort of like a one-off thing and someone's all bent out of shape because they were 15 minutes late and actually there was a car accident on the way? Like that's very yeah. different from somebody who's chronically an hour late and, kids not getting to bed on time and can't get up in the morning to go to school and it's impacting, you know, like there are bigger consequences to that behavior. And then I think you do have to reevaluate, you know, if you're really not able to get here at the time we said, either we back it up an hour because you think an hour, you have an hour delay in your brain, or we change things so school nights aren't involved or like we have to modify this program because it's not working and and it's detrimental to our child not just like I don't like it and I don't like you you know
0: that's not like a reason right and and you were saying before there's you know when all is said and done there are things that the law and the courts just cannot provide you and you know, with my services, I spend so much time on just co-parenting communication. I mean, some people can't even com- speak. Yeah. So whether yeah. It's by uh, abuse, you know, if it's mentally, uh, you know, different things, or or if it's court ordered, everything's through email or an app. Yeah. Um, but you know, talk talk a little bit about those things that the court cannot provide you with when it's
1: yeah I mean, there's lots the court cannot provide you with yeah. I, I am very fond of rubrics. I don't know if you use rubrics for people, mm-hmm. but um, I had somebody tell me the other day they have a four year old child and he's just you know very the dad is sort of like a d d and you know not really paying attention to a lot of the details and the mom has been doing that all the time, and she's all about that and you know she goes to pick up the little girl or he brings them back and you know says you know how how was everything and fine, you know no you know not any deep sort of analysis or report that she's really looking for. I said so. What is it that you really want to hear? Do you want to hear like did she nap? Did she eat? Did she have a play date? What was was there any injury? Like what are your concerns? Like you're asking him a broad question and he doesn't have the ability to focus and drill down and give you what you want. So you need, to, you need to create something that makes it easy for him because it's you who want the information. He doesn't know what you're looking for. You are just like dropped a line into the pond and you're fishing. As far as he's concerned, he's just like trying to get out. You know, he just doesn't know what you want. Mm-hmm. So identify what it is you're hoping to achieve by asking the question and then make it easy so you can then really say, I want to know, did she fall or did she, right. you know.
0: Those so. specifics... <laughs>
1: Yeah, those specifics are are sort of like the, you know, the devils in the details, as they say. Yeah. But giving people a system that works, I try to help people think. It's sort of the question from the beginning, you know, what would your husband say? But more of the, how does he think? So some people think visually. I, you know, I've created PowerPoints for people where they didn't see where the money was going to come from. And I literally would show visuals of, where like what sources of income we're going to develop you know we're going to bring x amount of dollars into their bank account every month mm. but from different sources i mean whatever it takes to help somebody understand wow. what's happening because otherwise it's a hurdle you can't get over in that instance it was a case where they were living a lot on a hus- on the husband's bonus and i remember her saying you know but we we spend x amount of dollars every month and it, the money she kept seeing from his, you know, his regular base pay was not going to be enough to support the family, but that's never how they lived. They'd always gotten the bonuses every six months and the bonuses would come in and he'd spread it out over time and they'd live on credit. And then they'd sort of like, you know, do this sort of turnaround thing with the bonus. So what he needed to do was really advance one bonus sort of in, you know, it we don't need to get into the details of how we structured it, but the bottom line is she needed to know she'd have enough every month uh, to, to make ends meet, but she couldn't sort of get it around her head until I sort of showed her visually where yeah. these
0: dollars were coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So
1: then she could move on and say, okay,
0: that I can agree to. Yeah. Some people can just hear it, you know, auditory, they're fine. They're good. You know, some people yeah. have to like, kinesthetically learn and absolutely that's that's really neat that you can be in tune so much with your client to know how they're going to even learn something but I also love that there's a workbook attached to to the book almost like journaling as well Um, and so that's another way of learning is to write it down and to go through set goals but there's a, a piece of information that I found very valuable as well that you had kind of a sample script of how to tell the children yeah well I have a whole podcast on that and, it, and that is a huge deep concern of most parents so tell me how the, the biggest points on that uh, from from your sample script
1: Well, you know, developmentally, obviously, there can be a six-year-old, you're telling something very different to a six-year-old. So, you know, part of it is, who are your children? Are you talking to them together, alone, Um, I think the biggest takeaways are that you and your spouse should be talking to the children together and it shouldn't be weighted in one person's directed direction. So sometimes people like, well, my husband, you know, wants to do all the talking. It's like, no, No. that's not okay. This needs to be, you need to be unified at least in the presentation. Mm -hmm. It's not anyone's fault the children you both love. I actually wrote, it's unpublished, but I've written a children's story on um, types of love. And in it talk about, you know, the enduring love a parent has for a child and how that's different from sort of the romantic love that people have for each other and how that can, you know, be prickly like a rose. You know, it's a floral analogy throughout the book. But, you know, a parent's love for a child is rooted like an oak tree. Whereas Mm -hmm. romantic love, you know, there's the flower, but there's also the thorn Mm -hmm. on a rose. And you know, understanding these kinds of things, you can give kids visual analogies and things to think about in terms of mm-hmm. um, parables and stories about how you got together and why that that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the parables that I often talk to people about is um, a sea turtle and a land turtle sort of meeting on the beach and um, getting together, and you know, that was great. And they had these the children and that was great and Mm -hmm. the children could be in the land and on the sea but after a while you know the land turtle really wanted to be on the land and the sea turtle really wanted to be in the sea but the children were more malleable they could go back and forth because they were sort of born of both parents so things like that when you give children a lens and something to to think about that um gives them
0: a positive image
1: can be helpful absolutely Um, so I think that's, you know, enormously important to It is. To...
0: One of the lines that you use is just making it sure that they know that none of this was their fault. Absolutely. And that there was that they are not a mistake. I recently coached a client whose daughter they were divorced when she was one and she's 14 years old. And just recently that 14-year-old has been thinking, I thought I was a mistake. I thought I was, you know, the teenage yep. years and the development. Yeah. So, you I, you know, like you said, you have to end it on a positive tone, that all these things happen for a reason, that they're your most glorious blessings from that union. And Absolutely. I mean, that's the best of, of the marriage, right, is it, you. Um, Absolutely. And, you yes. Know,
1: for a child to feel, you know, embraced by both parents and loved by both parents. I mean, kids can't be loved by too many people, and yeah. I think that's really, you know, important for them
0: to recognize and for parents to recognize. Yeah, from personal experience, I I mm-hmm. completely agree. Now, just to sum up, what would be kind of your final sayings about, uh, you know, the biggest takeaway if one was to pick up this book and
1: what. I'm glad you asked that. I mean, I guess when you were alluding to the workbook, one of the things that I hope people would get from it and the reason that I added it is obviously there are many people I'll never have the privilege to meet. Right. But I think that by completing the workbook, what people have is sort of their own, um, their own sort of path. And they can even use it in interviewing lawyers because it will distill their thinking and it will help them have more clarity around what they're hoping to achieve. So that it creates a roadmap for them and, frankly, for their lawyers. If the lawyers know, well, really, you know, I love my house, but I don't want to be there forever. As soon as my kids, you know, graduate from high school, I want to be out. Like, that's a very different plan from I want the house and I want the house and I want the house. And that seems like forever, like if you don't finish that sentence. So pre-fading some of these things that will happen give a lot more options. You may be able to refinance in a way that if it's, you're only talking about being there for three years, that's really different than if you're going to be there and you're going to pay off the mortgage and there's still 23 years left on it. You know, it's, it's there are many different consequences to uh, decisions.
0: Yes. So. Um, just, just from reading it, it is something that I am going to implement in my own practice. and. and- and so I really, really appreciate having it and having something to fall back on and to have you here today. You know, like I said before, we could talk and talk and talk. Absolutely. But, well, we can do it again if you want. I've really enjoyed it. Right. something else comes up, I am, um, Heidi, help me.
1: <laughs> so happy to help. Happy to help.
0: Well, that's it, folks. If you are at the beginnings of a divorce, please consider getting the book again. I will put a link to the website. You can follow her blog. Um, That also probably has many, many tidbits of what to do, how to prepare yourself. And I truly hope that this helped you today and can give you hope and healing. All right, make it a great day. Bye. Thank you so much for listening today. Come on over and visit me at CoachEmilySanchez.com. Don't forget to subscribe. And as always, make it a great day.